Okay. Good morning, church. Come on in and take your seats, please. And as you get to your seats, uh, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning's reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And I ask that your spirit would come and teach us this morning. Help us to think rightly about you and to think rightly about ourselves. Please keep us from any error and please stir us up to receive um, whatever it is that you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so my kids and I recently watched the Batman movie. Um, not the old ridiculous one with the purple underwear, but the, uh, the new serious Batman for grown-ups. Uh, supposedly for grown-ups, I don't know. Um, but it's a good movie. There's this dramatic scene towards the end uh, where Batman finally reveals his true identity to his lady friend. 
So he's just saved her from this gang of thugs. And he's up, they're up on the top of a building, and Batman's about to jump off the building and go save Gotham City when his, his lady friend yells out, Wait! At least tell me your name! And then Batman looks her in the eyes, and in his most dramatic Batman voice, he says, It's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. Then he jumps off the building and glides off and saves the city. It's great. And I thought, that's interesting. Um, that's pretty thoughtful of you, Batman. It's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. But I wonder if that's true. On the one hand, he's right. That's exactly what we love about Batman, right? He's this anonymous hero, completely unconcerned with fame or glory, who gives himself to fight for justice. He's a man of action, and I want to be a man of action. So I thought, yeah, that's right. It's what I do that defines me. But then I, I thought about Paul. And I wondered, what would the Apostle Paul say to Batman? And I think we know what he would say. I think we know what he would say, because the Corinthians were dealing with this question in their own sort of way, and we know what Paul said to them. I think he'd say something like this. He'd say, Batman, you're right that your actions matter, even more than you know. What you do has eternal consequences, actually. But you're only partly right. See, you've created a false distinction, you said, it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. So it turns out Batman is a, a mediocre philosopher. Um, here's, the, here's the important point that he missed. It's this, that being precedes doing. Being precedes doing, all right? All doing flows out of being. Identity comes first, and actions flow out from that. I think that's what Paul might say. That idea runs throughout his entire letter. Um, Daniel touched on it some last week. And it's especially important here in chapter 6, where we are this morning. What you are, your identity, comes first. That's foundational. And what you do flows out from that. So Batman was wrong. Um, you are what you are, and what you do shows us what you are. But identity comes first. Jesus said that you know a tree by its fruit. So an apple tree is an apple tree even before it's born any apples, but you know it's an apple tree by the apples that it bears. So I think we could summarize Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians like this. Remember who you are and act like it. Christian growth or sanctification is the process of becoming who you are. Um, there's something paradoxical about that, but it's true. That's the nature of the Christian life. Um, become who you are, remember who you are, and act like it. And this is who you are. This is your identity. You're Christians, which means that you are heirs of the kingdom of God who've been called out from the world and united to Jesus Christ. You're heirs of the kingdom who've been called out from the world and united to Jesus Christ. So we're going to see a couple of specific applications of this in the first and last part of chapter 6. And then right in the middle of the chapter, we get this high-octane, straight-down-the-middle gospel message about our new identity in Christ. So in the first part of the chapter, we're going to see that we've been united with Christ in his judgment of the world, and Paul makes a specific application of that, having to do with how we deal with problems in the church. Then we'll look at the hinge of Paul's argument. We'll see exactly what he has to say about our new identity in Christ. And then we'll look at the second of Paul's arguments at the end of the chapter, which is that we are united with Christ not just in spirit, but in our bodies. And he'll make some applications of that truth as well. But first, let's resituate ourselves in the flow of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians so far. 
So in the first five chapters, Paul has highlighted distinctions between the church and the world. In chapter one, he says that there's just two kinds of people in the world, right? Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. He contrasts the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world. And then in chapter two, he contrasts the natural person with the spiritual person. And then again, in chapter three, he says that the wisdom of the world is folly with God. So Paul's making distinctions. The Corinthian Corinthian Christians were apparently having a hard time distinguishing themselves from the culture around them. So Corinthian culture would have looked very familiar to us in some ways. So sexual immorality of a kind that was similar to what we see when we look around us uh, was common. So the Corinthians were struggling how to navigate life in an immoral pagan culture. When do you engage? When do you separate? That should sound familiar to us. And some of the Corinthians were getting too cozy with the world's way of living. And that might sound familiar also. But there's a, there's a continuous train of thought connecting chapter 5 and chapter 6. Let's look at it. So last week we saw in chapter 5 that Paul scolded the Corinthians and said that it's reported that there's sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. He says, don't even associate with such a one. But then he clarifies and says, I'm not talking about the world, but I'm talking about people who profess to be believers, right? He says, what do I have to do with judging the world? God judges those outside. It's those inside the church that we judge. So then we come to chapter 6, and Paul is continuing that line of thought. He says, likewise, just as we don't judge outsiders, don't turn to the world to judge family matters inside the church. So that's where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 6. Verse 1 says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So apparently what was happening was that there was some sort of dispute among brothers in the church. It was not a criminal matter, right? I mean, Paul recognized the role of the magistrate in criminal matters where the state bears the sword. But this was something more like, Ben here sold me a car, and it turned out to be a total junker. And I think he knew about it and didn't tell me. But... Rather than working it out amongst ourselves, I take Ben to court and I sue him. So Paul was fired up about this. He said, you know, the, the New King James does a better job of capturing his, dis, his disbelief. It says, dare any of you, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous? Paul says, how dare you? It's, it's not exactly an appeal to reason. He's appealing to their sense of shame. And he says that in verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. How dare you take your family squabbles to a pagan court and ask them to be your judge? Then he asks them a couple of striking rhetorical questions. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world's to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Paul uses that rhetorical device, do you not know, several times. And the implication is that they should know better. In this case, he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world and angels? Now, you might be thinking, like I did, actually, no, Paul, I didn't know that. In fact, what in the world are you talking about? So I, I don't know how developed this idea was for the Corinthians, but Paul seems to expect that they were familiar with it. He probably has in mind places like Daniel 7, which describes Daniel's vision of the four beasts. Um, Describing the fourth beast, it says, 
I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Or he might be thinking of Jesus' words to his disciples. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this is, this is not one of those teachings where the Bible is crystal clear, so we have to tread a little bit carefully. But the Bible seems to say that on Judgment Day, the saints, that's us, will participate with Jesus in the judgment of the universe. We will play a role in judging the world. And Paul's argument here presupposes that. So what can we say? I think first we can say that the Bible is crystal clear that God is the judge of the universe and Jesus Christ is the king who will sit on the throne of heaven on that day. Places like Matthew 25 and Revelation 20 make that perfectly clear. But the Bible also suggests that his people who've been united with him in his death and his resurrection will also be united with him in his judgment of the world. I have no idea exactly what that's going to look like. Um, But I suspect if Christ is the judge and we participate in his judgment, then I imagine our involvement will be some sort of amen in reply to his final word. Remember from Nehemiah that when God speaks, his people say amen. And his final word of judgment will also receive an amen that will seal the fate of the enemies of God. That includes his human enemies as well as fallen angels who rebelled against him. I don't think we can go a whole lot further than that with what we've been told, but, but Paul takes this eschatological idea and he brings it forward into the present. So it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. You will judge the world. Surely you can handle these petty squabbles. Now, if you're, you're paying attention, you might push back and say that this seems to contradict his previous statement in chapter 5 that he has nothing to do with judging outsiders. But this is all a matter of timing. Um, maybe you've heard the William F. Buckley saying, don't eminentize the eschaton. Um, It means essentially what Paul says in chapter 4. Don't pronounce judgment before the appointed time. You don't have the authority to pronounce a sentence on anyone before the time comes, and only the Father knows when that will be. So you should speak the warnings of Scripture, turn to Christ or else, but don't say to anyone you are condemned, because you don't know that. Only God does, and that day hasn't come. But Paul does say to us to live now in light of that future reality. You are united with Christ, the judge of all the world, and you will participate in that judgment. So it's absurd for you to look for a judgment call from unbelievers, whom you're going to judge. And it's absurd, excuse me, you're united to the incarnate wisdom of God, who has given you the spirit of wisdom as a gift. And yet, you appeal to the world for wisdom when you have a dispute. That's absurd. It ought not to be so. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, so don't turn to the world for wisdom when you have a dispute. The reason that Paul is so fired up about this is that these lawsuits bring shame on the church, and anything that brings shame on the church brings shame to the name of Christ. And that, Paul will not abide, and neither should we. When we come to the world saying, please help us sort out our problems, it weakens the gospel and it dishonors Christ. Um, 
Daniel told us a few weeks ago that the church is culture's conscience, and that's exactly right. But the world resists. The world desperately wants to put itself in the place of the judge. Think about how the world revels in every news scandal that involves the church, right? When the church experiences some public moral failure, it feeds and reinforces their rebellious hearts. That's what makes those scandals so tragic. You know, it's not the tarnished reputations of leaders who we once admired, but it's the stain on the bride of Christ that makes these scandals so scandalous. And public lawsuits do the same thing. We're not hiding our failures, right? We know that there's sin in the church. We're not trying to convince the world that we're sinless. But we are trying to show the world that we have a way of dealing with sin when it happens. We can't go to the world and say, the gospel is the answer to all of your problems, but we've got this problem that we can't figure out. Will you please help us? Can't do that. So Jesus gave his church a way of judging matters amongst ourselves, right? If someone sins against you in a way that was really sinful, not a crime, but truly a sin, then Matthew 18 tells us how to handle it. You go to your brother and you try to work it out. You try to win him back. If you can't, then go find a wise brother in the church and bring them along to help mediate, right? He says in verse 5, Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? It's another rhetorical question. The implication is that there should be, and in fact there is. And if there's persistent, unrepentant sin, even then, then you bring it to the elders, who then bring it to the church. And at that point, a judgment takes place that has been given to us right now. That's when the church says, we don't know the final state of your soul, but your behavior tells us that you're not a part of the body of Christ. And so then we send them away. That's church discipline, which Daniel talked about last week. But it should never get to that point, Paul says. He says, even having these disputes in the first place was a defeat for them. Why not rather be wronged, he said? Why not rather be cheated? It would be much better, much better for you to willingly suffer wrong and get ripped off than for you to drag the name of Christ and his bride through the mud by taking your brother to an unbelieving court. Jesus said that if anyone would sue you for your tunic, give him your cloak also. That's especially true when you're dealing with brothers and sisters in the church. All of us should have the attitude that it would be better for me to get ripped off than for me to be guilty of defrauding my brother or sister. Years ago, uh, I bought a car, actually, from David Douglas. Um, it was an old Honda Accord, I think. And it was a good, solid car. But, uh, you know, David, being the kind of man that he is, he offered it to me super cheap for almost nothing, uh, much less than it was worth. However, Phil had just recently preached a sermon kind of along these lines about not taking advantage of your brother. And so my conscience was pricked, and as was David's, I think. And so... Um, Thus ensued the strangest price negotiation for a used car <laughs> that you ever saw. David said something like, I'll sell it to you for a thousand bucks. I said, No, I won't go lower than two thousand. <laughs> he said, No way, I won't take a penny more than twelve hundred. Um, All right, I'll give you fifteen hundred, final offer. <laughs> okay, fine, sold. <laughs> but that's the way it should go in the church. It would be much better for you to suffer wrong and get ripped off than for you to be guilty of ripping off your brother. But if you are defrauded in some way, don't take your brother to court. Let's work it out here amongst ourselves with the tools that Christ has given us. 
Then he says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. And that leads him into a warning and a reminder in verse 9. And this is our second point. It says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So remember what we've said so far throughout this series. There's two kinds of people in the world. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And here, Paul reminds them again, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he elaborates with this list of the kinds of people who will not inherit the kingdom. So we'll look at the list in a minute. But first, let's think just briefly about this idea of inheriting the kingdom of God. What does that actually mean? It would be time very well spent for all of us to study and meditate on what the scriptures have to say about this. It's a, it's a very rich and multi-layered idea, but we'll touch on a couple of things. So when Jesus came into the world, he said, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the king has come, which means that God's kingdom is here and now. And Paul describes our salvation as God's act of bringing us into that kingdom. He says in Colossians that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom. So the kingdom is here, but some people are in it and others aren't. That means it's possible to live within the physical boundaries of God's kingdom, but not be a part of it. Paul described us Gentiles in Ephesians of having once been strangers and aliens, but when God saved us, he brought us into the kingdom and made us fellow citizens with the saints. So the kingdom of God is here and now, and we who are in Christ are citizens and heirs of that kingdom, while those who are apart from Christ are outside of it and still in darkness. But Jesus also said that the kingdom is like a tree that starts small and it grows. And it's growing towards a day when all of the remaining enemies of God will be cast out and the kingdom will be completely and finally established, free from any sin or pain or rebellion. So there's another sense in which the kingdom is not yet fully here. God's work of kingdom building is still in progress. And when the Bible talks about inheriting the kingdom, it usually has an eye towards that future inheritance when we who are in Christ will enjoy unending life with the king in his completed, perfected kingdom. In Matthew 25, Jesus prophesies the final day of judgment. He says this, he says that on that day, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. Paul says, don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? John says that God is light and he has no fellowship with darkness. So don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're living as strangers and aliens within his borders now and they'll be cast out when the king returns. So now let's, let's consider Paul's list in a little bit more detail. The first thing to say is that it's not a random list. It's the same list that we looked at last week in chapter 5, but with a couple of additions. These are sins that the Corinthians were surrounded by and often guilty of. Um, so the, the first half of the list deals mostly with sexual sin, 
and the second half with sins related to greed or fraud, as in the case of the lawsuit. As I said a minute ago, first century Greco-Roman culture was a cesspool of sexual sin and perversion. You can sort of read that between the lines in Paul's argument here, but there's also an abundance of sources uh, from the time that describe the sorts of sexual practices that were common and publicly accepted. So, you know, the reason that sexual sin shows up so often in Paul's lists of sins is not because Paul was a prude. It's because that was the filthy water that the Christians were swimming in. And some of the Corinthians had come to believe that they could continue to do these sorts of things that they'd become accustomed to from the culture around them and still be a Christian. And Paul says, no, don't be deceived. People who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. So this list contains a warning for the Corinthians, as it does for us. There is an irreconcilable conflict between these kinds of behaviors and life in the kingdom of God. You can't continue to do these things and call yourself a Christian. Remember, doing flows out of being. Being comes first. And Paul's list reinforces that. The way that the ESV translates this list, um, something gets a little bit lost. Daniel touched on this a little bit last week. Paul's list in the Greek is a hard-hitting list of descriptive nouns. It's all nouns. There's no adjectives, no verbs. It's all nouns, kinds of people. The New King James captures that. It says it like this. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's how it reads in Paul's language. Those are all identity labels, right? Fornicators, idolaters, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals. It's stronger than just saying that these were people who sometimes did these things. Doing flows out of being. If you lie repeatedly, it's because you're the kind of person who lies, and we call those people liars. If you're constantly drunk, it's because you're the kind of person who gets drunk. The Bible calls those people drunkards, and such people will not inherit the kingdom. That's sobering, or it should be, if you'll pardon the pun. Paul's point here is not to let us off the hook, as if to say that it's fine as long as you only sin this way occasionally. That's not his point. He is making a distinction, and he's saying, this is not who you are, but there's an implicit warning in it to us as well. You can't say that this is not who you are while you continue to do these things, so don't do them. Don't do them. The other thing to say is that um, these discussions inevitably get a little uncomfortable when we get into the area of sexual sins. The fact that it makes us uncomfortable is not necessarily a problem. Um, In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he had some very similar things to say. He said in chapter 5 of Ephesians, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. But then he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So in other words, I know that it's shameful to talk about these things, but you must bring them out into the light so that we can see them and avoid them. So we must soldier on. Again, the first half of the list here focuses on sexual immorality with idolaters thrown in the mix. He says, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. So there are a few things to say here. Um, sexually immoral or fornicators, as the old translations say. You remember from last week, it's the Greek word porneia, 
which is where we get the word pornography. And in the New Testament, it essentially describes any form of sexual sin. Um, But most directly, it has to do with having sex outside of marriage. So let me stop and say what we know but needs to be said directly, that God prohibits sex outside of the covenant of marriage. Inside the covenant, it's blessed. It's almost commanded, as we'll see next week, actually. But outside of it, it is forbidden. Younger guys and gals, this word fornication is a good one for you to have in your vocabulary. God forbids it. Don't be deceived. You cannot live as a fornicator and call yourself a Christian. It doesn't work that way. God takes this very seriously. In addition to physical sex, pornography also falls squarely into this category. God forbids it. Those who live that way will not inherit the kingdom. Paul doesn't permit us any less offensive way of saying it. The next word is related. Um, An adulterer is obviously one who's married. That's someone who breaks the marriage covenant and goes outside of it for sexual pleasure. Um, There's something doubly treacherous about the sin of adultery because of all that the marriage covenant means. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. His next descriptor is more controversial in our culture. And because it's controversial, it's important that we speak clearly and plainly about it. Um, There is actually a fair bit of disagreement about the exact translation, and not just along the lines of liberal and conservative scholars, although there's certainly plenty of that as well. Um, The ESV translates it as men who practice homosexuality. That is not a literal rendering of the text. Um, The ESV makes an interpretive substitution, which is sometimes unavoidable, but we have to be careful. So in the Greek, there are two separate nouns in the list, uh, which the ESV and some others translate as a single phrase. Remember a minute ago I read the New King James, which translated as uh, homosexuals and sodomites. In the Old King James, it says effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind. So the first word in the list carries with it a notion of being soft or effeminate. In this case, obviously not referring to a woman, but to a man who exhibits those traits. So Paul says here, as he does at the end of his letter, when he tells men to act like men, there there is a kind of effeminacy that for a man is not just inappropriate, but is sinful. And the second word is straightforward and is captured clearly by the old translation, sodomite. So most translators and commentators will say that what's in view here is the idea that in a homosexual relationship, one plays a feminine part and the other a masculine, and both are called out here as sinful. And that's actually important because there are those who will try to explain away the Bible's teaching on homosexuality by saying that what's being prohibited in places like Romans 1 is actually the kind of abusive relationship that was apparently common at the time where there was either a class or age discrepancy between the men. Um, But in this passage, Paul calls out both as sinful. So, let's say again, what is unpopular and may soon be illegal to say, but is crystal clear in the Bible. God absolutely forbids homosexuality. The law in Leviticus calls it an abomination. Romans 1 calls it shameless and contrary to nature. And here Paul says that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, The next few descriptors in the list point us back to the first section of the chapter and deal with sins related to greed or fraud. Um, Nor thieves, nor greedy, he says. Some translations say covetous. These are people who are always grasping for more than what they have. 
even if, or maybe even especially if, it belongs to someone else. So in the case of the Corinthian lawsuit between the brothers, this could have been referring to either party. Um, It could have been the one who committed the fraud or the one who was so attached to his stuff that he was willing to drag his brother into court. So grasping after physical stuff is not the character of the Christian. Jesus warned us to take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Next, he calls out drunkards. This doesn't fit exactly into the category of greed or fraud, but we'll see later on in the letter that this was a sin that the Corinthians were guilty of, um, and it's certainly related to the kind of licentious, carnal living that they had failed to shake off. So drunkenness is a sin that we have to watch closely, right? Alcohol is it's like sex in some ways. It's um, physically pleasant, otherwise it wouldn't be a temptation. But also, like sex, it's a gift and a blessing within the bounds that God has set for it. But outside of those boundaries, it becomes a sin and a curse. So wine is used as a symbol both of blessing and of cursing in various places in the Bible. So the principle is easy enough, even if sorting through the practicalities might be complicated. The principle is that alcohol was God's idea, and it's a blessing. But at the same time, we're commanded, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So, Don't be deceived, Christians. Drunkards are right here in Paul's list of those who will not inherit the kingdom. So be on your guard. And lastly, he mentions revilers and swindlers, which Daniel touched on last week. A reviler is a verbal abuser, someone whose heart and mouth are full of harsh words and insults. And a swindler is a thief, but one who robs by cheating or fraud. So at least one of the parties in the Corinthian lawsuit was guilty of swindling. And Paul was shocked and ashamed that people in the church would defraud and swindle each other. So let it never be so. So that's Paul's unholy list. Um, He says that these kinds of people will not inherit the kingdom. That idea is very offensive to our culture, and maybe to us. But we must hold on to it, one, because it's true, and also because the gospel depends on it. Now, if you've been paying attention in church your whole life, then I know what you might be thinking. You're thinking, I've read Romans before. No one is righteous. No, not one. The unrighteous, that's all of us. That's me. I'm on that list. And if that's what you're thinking, of course, you're exactly right. That's true. Every one of us has done things that put us on that list. That's absolutely true. But Paul's point here is something different. It's one that we must not lose because it is part of the gospel message. Paul's point here is not about which of us are worthy of condemnation because of our sin. That's all of us, as he said in Romans. His point here is about identity. His point is that when Christ brought you out of darkness and into his kingdom, your identity changed along with your nature. In verse 11, he says, Such were some of you. This is what you used to be. This is the kind of thing that you were, but not anymore. You were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is one of the most wonderful, succinct gospel messages in the letter. You have been changed. You're not the same kind of creature that you once were. You're a new creation. You've put off the old man and you've put on the new. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, that's what you were or what you would be apart from Christ. But you've been washed sanctified, 
justified. It's a very Trinitarian statement on this idea that you've been changed. You've been washed by the blood of Christ, sanctified by the power of the Spirit, and justified by the word of the Father. Jesus has washed away the filth of your sin with his own blood, and he's clothed you with his own perfect righteousness. The Holy Spirit has sanctified you, so that sin doesn't have a hold on you anymore. You've been made holy, set apart for service to God. Not only is the stain of your old sin washed away, but you aren't held in the grip of your sin any longer. You are free to obey and to live as you were made to live. And the Father has justified you. The guilt of sin has been removed. He remembers your sin no more. You have been declared not guilty in the courtroom of God. Thanks be to God. Let me quickly touch on just a couple of questions that might naturally come out of this this discussion. So first, if doing flows out of being, and my being has been changed, then why are there things on this list that I did last week? How are we supposed to process the fact that we are supposedly a new creation, and yet we still sin? Well, the first thing to say is that there shouldn't be. That's Paul's point. Let's not miss it. So kill it. Kill that sin. Put it to death. It doesn't belong. But there is a risk that we might start to doubt whether this new identity is really ours. So we do also have to understand that our new nature is like the kingdom of God that we talked about a minute ago and that you are now a part of. It's a present reality, here and now, and at the same time, it's still under construction. Here's an analogy that I found uh, to be very helpful. Imagine that you're lost in the woods in the middle of a snowstorm. You're miserable and you're cold to the bone. But then you come upon a house in the woods and the door opens and inside the house there's a roaring fire on the hearth. So as you walk out of the harsh cold outside and into the warmth of the house, your situation changes in an instant. And yet, you're not immediately warm and comfortable. The cold still lingers in your hands and feet. So at that moment, there are two forces at work. There's the cold in your bones from outside and the warmth from the fire inside the house. The cold can still be felt, but the process is unstoppable. There is one unmistakable direction and one inevitable outcome. That's how it is with sin in the life of the Christian. So the fact that you slipped up a few weeks ago and had too much to drink or saw something you shouldn't have, it doesn't mean that your whole life is a lie. It means that you're still a work in progress. Um, But when you step back and take a wide-angle view, the pattern and direction of your life will be clear. It should be. It must be. Um, And you must be actively killing that sin, or it will be killing you. One other thing to mention here. I want to say a word to those of us who've grown up as Christians and don't really remember a time when you didn't love Jesus and want to obey him. It can be a little confusing when we talk about these uh, dramatic identity changes. You know, if I was baptized when I was six and have been basically following Jesus ever since, does that mean I'm a former idolater, you know, a former adulterer? Um, The answer is yes and no, right? David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So the stain of sin is on every single one of us from the moment of our birth or even before. That's fallen human nature. You know, some of us had to walk 
knee-deep in the snow for years before we came to the door. And others of us, by God's grace, were born on the front step. But the sting of cold that is sin is still on us. We're all saved by the same gospel, the same gospel, which says that God brought us in out of the cold, though we didn't deserve it. But at the same time, don't invent a seedier story for yourself than the one that God gave you. Um, If God has kept you from any of the sins on this list, that's a gift of grace for you to be thankful for. To be born into a God-fearing family and to be spared from long years of slavery to sin is a tremendous blessing, and you should thank God for that. Um, Every lustful thought reminds you that there is sin in your heart, and more than enough to separate you from God forever if it weren't for his grace to us in Christ. But remember, Paul's message is not, you are a fornicator and an idolater, but thank God for the gospel, which allows idolaters to inherit the kingdom. He says, no, idolaters will not inherit the kingdom. His point is that such were some of you, and lingering sin reminds us that apart from Christ, all of us would be. But you've been washed, sanctified, and justified. The core of your identity is not that of an idolater or a fornicator. You are not a homosexual or a drunkard. If you are in Christ, that's not who you are. You have been united with Jesus Christ. You have been set apart as holy. Your identity is completely wrapped up in him. So act like it. Okay, his argument then flows right into his next thought in verse 12, and this is our last point. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. It seems like this phrase, all things are lawful for me, was a sort of slogan for the Corinthians. That's probably why in your Bible it's in quotation marks. Um, There's no such thing as quotation marks in Greek, so it's a little hard to know. But Paul seems to do this several times um, in this passage, excuse me, and throughout the letter. He quotes the Corinthians and then offers a correction. So this might have been something that they wrote to him in their letter that he's responding to, um, or it could have just been a common saying for them, I'm not sure. But each of these sayings has some truth in it, just not the whole truth. Um, And that's the case with this phrase, all things are lawful for me. It's true that the Corinthians were not under the Mosaic law in the way that Israel had been for thousands of years. But the Corinthians had apparently just taken this idea and run with it. Um, They were using this new freedom to justify all kinds of sordid behavior. You know, all things are lawful. The word that describes that position, which has been around forever, is antinomianism, right? So nomos means law, so antinomianism is against the law. And Paul says, no, you've misunderstood. That's not what Christian freedom is. It's kind of interesting that he doesn't flat out reject the saying. Um, Of course, Paul doesn't believe that literally all things are lawful. Um, He appeals to the law a number of times uh, in this letter. But his goal in this passage is not to rein the Corinthians in with the law, but to persuade them of the implications of their new identity. Yes, all things are lawful in a sense, but not all things are good and helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. So Christian liberty is not about the freedom to do whatever you want to do. Christian liberty is about freedom from the bondage of sin. Paul says in Romans 6, that you are either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. The fornicator, the homosexual, the drunkard are slaves to their sin. Without the changed identity, 
that comes when we are saved and united to Christ, there is no hope of changed behavior. But when Christ washes us clean and frees us from slavery to our fallen sinful passions, he frees us to be what we were made to be. Being freed from the law of Moses certainly doesn't mean that anything goes, right? Jesus didn't lower the bar. He raised it, actually. And Paul echoes Jesus, as he always does, when he summarizes his message to the Corinthians at the end of the letter. He says, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Love is the standard by which we judge our behavior, not liberty or law. Love of God and love of neighbor The way that God defines love, which the law teaches us, by the way. So the Christian is free, and wonderfully so, but it's not a libertarian kind of freedom that says that I can do whatever I want. Um, Martin Luther wrote a, a helpful tract on Christian liberty, and he had this pithy summary. He said, a Christian is the most free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone. So Christian liberty is about the freedom to give things up for the good of your neighbor and to give ourselves to God as his happy slaves. His second qualification to their freedom is this, I will not be dominated by anything. So that again takes our mind back to Romans 6. It says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So whatever you obey, whatever you cannot be without, that thing dominates you, and you are its slave. You cannot serve two masters. We are either slaves to sin or slaves to God. So alcohol, food, sex, or a nice boat, those things are all lawful and a blessing if they are received with thankfulness within the boundaries that God has set for them. But Paul says, I will not be dominated by those things. Slavery to those things is sin. And you are slaves to God. It means you are not slaves to sin. So don't be. Then in verse 13, Paul, he quotes the Corinthians again and changes his emphasis just slightly. So his main point is still about Christian identity and union with Christ. Uh, But he begins to correct a misunderstanding that the Corinthians had about the importance of the body. It says, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. So this, this looks to be another Corinthian slogan. Um, it's not really clear whether God will destroy both one and the other is a part of the slogan or if that was Paul's addition. Um, it doesn't really matter. Either way, it's a pithy statement about the irrelevance of the Old Testament food laws. And Paul agrees with that as far as it goes, right? But remember, the Corinthians were taking their freedom from food laws and they were using that to justify sinful sexual behavior. But Paul corrects them. He says, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So Paul takes the Corinthian slogan and he flips it to make his point. So his argument goes like this. So as you say, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. True enough. But the body is for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, and God will raise us up by his power. So Paul agrees, right, that food doesn't matter in any ultimate spiritual sense. He'll talk more about that later in chapter 8. Jesus said that what you eat just passes straight through you and cannot defile you. 
But it's not true of your body. Your body is not meant for porneia, for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord. Our bodies are not like food that just passes through and rots away. Our bodies are eternal. God raised the Lord and will also raise you up by his power. So live now in light of that reality. It's true that our bodies came from dust and will return to dust, but that's not the end of the story for your body. It will be raised, and that must affect what you do with your body now. Then in verse 15 through 17, Paul makes this really profound argument about our union with Christ and how that union completely rules out the prospect of any sexual immorality. He speaks specifically of going to the prostitute, but his argument applies to any form of, of sexual immorality. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So we use the language of union with Christ, right, to capture all of the many different facets of our salvation. And here, Paul is teasing out what it means to be united with Christ in his resurrection. God raised up the Lord, which means that he will raise you up. And because of that, our bodies are part of the deal. They're not discardable. Our bodies are members of Christ. They've been joined to Christ. Our union with him encompasses all of our being, not just our souls, but our bodies also. So then he asked, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to the prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So, Paul is appealing here back to one of the strangest, most wonderful, and mystical realities in God's creation, just as God told it to Adam there in the garden. God created man and woman, and he brought them together. And when they come together, something mysterious happens. The two are joined in such a way that they become one. There's a depth of meaning there that maybe only the poets are fit to explore. Um, and then when this happens inside of the boundaries of the covenant of marriage, it's unspeakably beautiful. And in some mysterious way, it's even a picture of Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. When Paul talks about this in Ephesians, you can almost see him just shaking his head when he says, this mystery is profound. But I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So when a man and his wife come together, something mysterious and true is being said about Christ and his bride, and it's glorious. But outside of the marriage covenant, sex is still a joining where two become one, but it's telling a lie about Christ. Paul asks, how can you take your body, which has been united with Christ, and unite it instead with a prostitute? Never. To be one with Christ and one with your wife is coherent and beautiful, but to be one with Christ and one with a prostitute is incoherent and shameful. So flee from sexual immorality, he says. Flee from porneia. Flee like Joseph, who left his coat behind and ran away from Potiphar's wife. Flee as if your life depended on it. Nothing would be too, too dramatic. If your phone tempts you to fornication, be ruthless with it. To throw it out the window of your car as you drove down I-40 would not be overly dramatic. Um, that's what you would do if you were holding a live hand grenade. All a hand grenade can do is send you to be with the Lord. But fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus said that you should cut your hand off if it causes you to sin. It would be better to be without a hand than for your soul to be thrown into hell. It would certainly be better to be without a phone. 
So flee from sexual immorality. Then Paul says this strange thing. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So what's that about? Um, There's actually another interpretive addition here in the ESV translation. The word other is actually not there. The text just says every sin that a person commits is outside the body. So it could be that this is another Corinthian saying, right? For the Corinthians to say that every sin is outside the body could make some sense for them. You know, they had decided that what you did with your body didn't matter, um, that all sins were only spiritual. So that could be. And then Paul's saying, no, the sexually immoral person sins against or with his own body. Um, That's one option. The translators decided that he probably means every other sin, and that, that could also be right. In that case, Paul really is separating out sexual sin as being in some way unique. You know, we can think of other sins like gluttony or drunkenness that seem to be against the body. Um, But Paul may be saying that sexual sin has another dimension to it. The great mystery that somehow sex is meant to say something about Christ himself and his church means that to sin in that way has some extra significance. That should be humbling for all of us, for all of us. But then, after that hard word, as Paul always does, He ends with this wonderful, positive statement about our identity. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that y'all, corporately, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So the body of Christ is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And in a similar sense, your physical body is also a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the most profound statements about our physical bodies in all of the Bible. Um, The first thing to notice is that it's another statement about identity. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what you are. You are a dwelling place for God. We're accustomed to speaking of Christ dwelling in our hearts, and that's, that's true. Paul says that in Corinthians. But for Paul to say that our bodies are a temple of God is very striking. You know, for thousands of years, God's special presence with his people was in the temple. That was the holiest of places. So for Paul to imply that that holy place of God's intense presence is now within us, and not just in our hearts in a spiritual sense, but within these fragile, awkward, dirty bodies of ours, that would have been a shocking idea to a Jewish Christian. And it's shocking to us as well. You know, the idea that our body is a temple of God goes against all of the Gnostic tendencies in our culture. Um, Gnosticism, you remember, that's the very old idea that basically holds that our bodies are just a shell. They don't have any meaning. Um, All that really matters is the mind and the will. And our culture is very Gnostic. You know, we've decided that whatever you want to do with your body is up to you. It's fair game. Uh, It's your choice. In fact, not even your sex is determined by your body. Even that is a matter of the will. So, you know, our culture treats the body as just a tool for satisfying the desires of the will. Um, It's sort of ironic that the unbelieving world, which says that your material body is really all that there is, has such a base and empty view of the body in the end. It's Christians who are always talking about the spiritual world who actually have a high view of the body. Another image comes to mind if you remember that Paul's audience, who were not Jews but were recently converted pagans, would probably not have thought of Jerusalem when they heard this, that their bodies were a temple. 
they would have pictured the temples of Apollo and Aphrodite, you know, there in Corinth, they were familiar with. And those temples are obviously very different from God's temples. Um, for one, unlike Jewish temples, they would have been littered with statues and images of the God who supposedly inhabited them. And Paul might also have had that image in mind. So we're obviously not permitted to make images of God, but you and I, who are created in his image, actually bear the image of God in our bodies. So in a way, our bodies are like those pagan temples. Your body is a shrine to the spirit of the living God. His image is all over you. And so to use your body for sexual immorality is an act of desecration. It's like taking a can of spray paint to the image of God that you bear in your body. Our bodies are not ours to do with as we please. You know, our culture has its own slogan, uh, like the Corinthians, my body, my choice is one that you've heard before. And it's utter nonsense. Paul flatly refutes it. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Your body is not your own. It's not even your own at a purely human level. Um, we're going to see next week, Paul says that the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. But ultimately, it was the blood of Christ spilled on the cross that purchased you for himself. When Christ ransomed you out of slavery to sin, he did not just get your heart. He saved your whole being, and therefore he has a rightful claim over your whole being. You have been bought with a price, mind, soul, and body. And to have been bought by Christ is to be happy indeed. Once again from Romans 6. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Glorify God in your body. That's Paul's summary conclusion. Glorify God in your body. That's the great doing that flows out of all these wonderful being statements in chapter 6. You will judge the world, so glorify God in your body. You were washed, you were sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So glorify God in your body. Your bodies are members of Christ. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So glorify God in your body. And you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Please stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the light of your holy word. Thank you for not leaving us in darkness. Thank you for bringing us out of the darkness of our sin and into the light of your kingdom. We are humbled and we're thankful, Lord, when we consider what you've done for us in Christ. So please help us as we go to remember who you are and in doing so to remember who we are and help us to live in a way that's befitting of citizens and heirs of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.